Hey everybody, Justin here. So many of you guys know that our Friday episodes are pre-recorded on Wednesday and this one is no different. Obviously, <laughs> usually the state of play in the world is a little less dramatic than a full-on invasion starting from Russian forces into Ukraine. That happened in the wee hours of Wednesday night uh, and through Thursday as it has developed. So here is the latest uh, as we are about to publish this episode, which will go live a little bit earlier than it normally does leading into Friday. There is sustained fighting. Russian forces have knocked out a lot of munitions depots and military supply areas. There is cyber warfare being engaged in and airports have been bombed. Vladimir Putin has been resolute that this is something that will not end until there is a denazification and demilitarization of what he looks to be a murderous regime in Kiev. This would be the one run by Vladimir Zelensky. Vladimir Zelensky says that he has cut off diplomatic ties with Russia. Uh, from the American perspective, Joe Biden announced sanctions, increased sanctions today, although they do not include sanctions on the oil and gas sectors of Russia, the two by far. Uh, biggest sources of revenue for the country. And it does not push Vladimir Putin or Russia out of the SWIFT banking network. Now, that is something that you, the U.S. cannot do unilaterally. European countries are wary of making that move because it would impede their ability to pay Russia for gas, which they are dependent on. And furthermore, there is no legal challenge from the United States to Vladimir Putin for his personal belongings, wealth, family members. I don't know if we're going to see more sanctions. My one note guess on that is that the sanctions that we have levied will not stop Vladimir Putin from taking Kiev if, if he wants it. But as always, we're going to have to let it play out. The rest of the episode, I believe, is well worth listening to, specifically the conversation that we have with Kevin Ryan at the end. Uh, the goal was to talk about empathy in wartime, where it is weaponized, where it is our saving grace, and everywhere in between. So uh, that hopefully will explain uh, uh, the difference in tone compared to how it would have gone if we would have done this episode uh, uh, before, but that's that. Let's go ahead and get into the episode as was previously recorded. The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for February 25th, 
2022. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. Uh, We've got some interesting stuff to get to today. Uh, A look forward. We are going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk more about Ukraine, but uh, I I don't know. I got to thinking a lot about war and when the last time that the drum beats of war beat as loud as they are beating right now in the American media. And it was the run up to Iraq. Afghanistan is a different situation because 9-11 was the precursor. but. The idea of now we go here or now this is happening and we all just kind of have to watch with bated breath as things start to kind of become a bigger and bigger uh, issue was Iraq. And so with that being said, now that I am a wizened old man in my uh, late 30s, (laughs) I, I really wanted to reach out and talk to somebody about empathy in a time of war and specifically how that is weaponized or led to non-interventionalism. It is really kind of its own key cog. Anytime that I have the big, heady, philosophical questions, the only man to call is Kevin Ryan. We're going to talk to him a little bit later. We are also going to get to some 2024 online fundraising news. Who is spending big coin when it comes to assembling donor lists? The names will not surprise you. You're going to know who they are, but the numbers might. They are pretty crazy. And as we round the corner into Joe Biden's first State of the Union address, there will be a rebuttal not only from the Republican Party, but also from the Democratic Party, who will do it? It's Rashida Tlaib. But why are the progressives giving a rebuttal? We'll talk about that. But we have one more thing to do. We'll fake out right there. And that is a New York State poll looking at the primary for governor. A reminder that Uh, This was about when Andrew Cuomo was trying to look for one more term. He is gone. Kathy Hockiel is in his stead. And it looks like she will carouse to not only the Democratic primary, but in all likelihood back uh, a return, a return trip to Albany. She is leading her nearest Democratic challenger by 30 points. Machi machi people like Kathy. Twenty twenty four. You guys know I'm counting down the minutes until uh, until we can finally get into the only thing that matters: the big Kahuna, the presidential race. Now, that's not, I'm not disrespecting the midterms. I love you, midterms. Midterms, you are the best thing that's ever happened. If we could only count years where they don't have midterms or presidential elections. Now, right after the midterms, ooh, that's when we get that two-year cycle. Oh, I love eating it. Mm. But anyway, midterms first. 
That doesn't mean that the candidates that are going to run in 2024 are not jumping on it. And the way, I mean, this is so fascinating because back in the olden times, when I'd read book books about campaigns, the silent primary that would normally happen would begin by getting like your closest crew together. You know, when you read all these books, like the, the the beginning of everything is like in some law firm's office where some people are are talking to the candidate about like, hey, we this is what we think we should do. And we're going to craft this amazing campaign and blah, blah, blah. So you get your core crew together. And then you would really just start reaching out to the people that would make this happen. So rich people, politicians, you start trying to lay the groundwork to let everybody know that you're going to go for it. So when everything comes down, don't do anything crazy. In fact, uh, consider doing something crazy in my favor, Uh, meaning give me money or give me your endorsement. But now fundraising is totally different. Yes, of course, it matters to get big money from big billionaires, but it also matters a lot to raise cash from small donors. So how do you do that? Well, you get email lists in the same way that anybody sells anything online. You have email lists and then you put those together and you start pumping out email so you can say, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi is at it again. Give me $5. And a lot of these are through packs where you don't even know where the money is necessarily going. But there have been some pretty hefty expenditures on email lists this early in the game. For example, this is according to Politico. Ted Cruz spent $13.6 million in 2021. More than almost every senator who's planning on running for re-election this year. 3.3 million of that went into digital services alone. So you are looking at that point at email list rental, presumably. You are looking at that at digital marketing, targeting, Facebook ads. Like that's that's 3.3 million dollars in what is effectively online marketing. Pretty crazy. Josh Howley's campaign spent $1.7 million uh, uh, last year. And meanwhile, two PACs started by contenders currently out of office, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, spent $2.4 million and $1.4 million online, respectively. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, and what I'm not super clear on is if you rent this list, like how long do you have it? Also, are you just giving the people that you rent it from what you want to put out to them and they just pump it? Of course, the undisputed big chungus of, I mean, really all things Republican, but more specifically to this point, online marketing is Donald Trump. That man, or at least his Save America uh, pack, spent $6.4 million on digital in 2021, including $2.8 million on ads. This according to Bully Pulpit Interactive, a Democratic firm that tracks expenditures. So I sent a little text to your friend and mine, the money man, Dave Leventhal 
asking about the kind of permanence of these lists, specifically the idea that, all right, well, if you spend 1.7 million on cobbling together lists for, you know, a run, and then it winds up not happening, right? So Josh Hawley is one of those dudes where if Trump doesn't run, then he would definitely go for it. If Trump does run, then unless you are going to craft a screw Donald Trump narrative, then it's going to be harder. So let's say he spends all this money on on digital list building and then he doesn't. Can he sell that? Leventhal says, no, you are renting all of these. Now, where the money is at is in harvesting emails. So if you are somebody who builds lists, if you are a candidate who, let's say, does gigantic free events where you have to give your email and phone number to get a ticket, and you have done that over the course of four years and therefore have built up a gigantic mailing and phone texting list, then renting that out is a a money fountain. For that information that you have already gathered, you can continue to rent it out to different people for millions, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I guess that's because all these other guys are renting it at market rate. And market rate right now is pretty good. Pretty good. You know, if it were on a menu, it would be uh, uh, like it would be listed as market rate, like like swordfish is at at a fancy seafood restaurant. (laughs) Like if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Kind of expensive. Joe Biden's State of the Union will take place on March 1st. So that is next Tuesday. And after he delivers it there will be traditional rebuttals. This is usually one of those rising star kind of slots. So one of the years when uh, Trump was giving it, it was uh, the the, the Kennedy fail grandson that wound up losing to Ed Markey. Uh, Tim Scott got the rebuttal slot last year when Joe Biden gave his joint uh, congressional speech. And while we don't know yet who is going to give the Republican rebuttal, there will be a rebuttal by a Democratic Congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, the member of the squad, the one who has said uh, we're going to impeach the MRFer when she got elected. Of course, a representative from Michigan. He's going to give a rebuttal wherein she will hammer moderate Democrats. <laughs> this will be done on behalf of the, uh, uh, wh- who is it? The, the Working Families Party, the left wing group, the Working Families Party. We quote now from Politico. Tlaib will praise Biden's stimulus bill and make the case that liberals have pushed aggressively for his agenda, according to a summary of her remarks shared to Politico. She is planning to argue that Republicans and a handful of 
intringent Democrats have blocked progress on lowering the cost of housing, healthcare, and prescription drugs. Friends, I don't know what else says disunity within a party than a member of the president's own party taking this opportunity to rip other Democrats. Like, I kind of think like this is a bigger story than it's going to wind up being because the point of the state of the union, the point of the state of the union is that on the democratic side, the final word of the president should be the final word. In fact, rebuttals in general always seem really petty and stupid and weak. I, I don't know why it's looked at as this gift for for up and coming people. I guess on on some level it is FaceTime and national airtime is something that is oftentimes hard to come by. So it is an introduction for some folks. But in general, I mean, like Rashida Tlaib is well known. Now, if Rashida Tlaib was giving the Democratic rebuttal for Trump. Makes sense. She's fiery. She's progressive. She can identify with a demographic that you might want to reach. But I don't in any way get the idea that after Joe Biden says the state of our union is strong and gets applause, that there should be any other word from the Democrats. It is baffling to me. It is befuddling to me that this would be would be the thing beyond the fact that like. I mean, I don't know. I followed this. uh, I mean, I was forced to pay attention to Congress when there was no other politics going on. And it seemed like the progressives got everything they wanted. They ran their strategy as long as it was going to go. It didn't work. They were close. But it didn't work. You wanted to hold both bills together? Couldn't hold both bills together. You wanted to make sure that Nothing got voted through in the House before Joe Manchin acquiesced to your demands in the Senate. Cool. Didn't happen. So you can blame them for not going along with your plan. But it really feels like spilt milk. You know, it really feels like blaming, uh, you know, hey, just also dredging up the past. I guess this is also on some level a a pitch for progressives that are running in democratic races. I, I guess from that perspective, it makes sense. If, if you are really out there just to say, this is why we need more progressives, go out and vote progressive. But that's very, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, big picture, but I don't think that Rashida Tlaib is looking at a big picture. She's looking at it in that we do not have enough progressives in Congress. So let me spell out why you in your various different races. And I think, you know, Texas is is one of the earliest. They vote on March 1st. So like Jessica Cisneros will not have the right, you know, boost for that. But for a lot of other races, for the vast majority of other races, you can say this is why. You don't vote again. You don't vote for the incumbent or you don't vote for the establishment candidate because progressives, if you believe that anything that I've said is true, go vote for all of these progressive candidates. Will it work? Is she the person who should have the face of it? And 
even if this is for the right reasons, will it take away from the thunder and grandeur of the State of the Union from a Democratic president? I mean, if anybody talks about it, yes, I would say so. But I get why she's doing it now. I'm glad we talked through this. Thank you for being there for me, dear listener. If you would like to support the show, then you should head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can get our bonus podcast at the $3 level each and every week, one on Sunday, one on Thursday, Sunday night, late Sunday night. It's really Monday. And then on Thursday, the late edition, the latest possible stuff. And look, spoiler alert, when we are in a war footing situation, you're going to want that late edition. You're going to want it. Because it's going to be pretty helpful, especially when we are dealing with this up to the minute. Did Putin do it? What's happening? Kind of stuff that we're doing now. So head on over there. Uh, uh, One also final reminder. This is a great weekend to binge. If you have not listened to it, the first season of World's Greatest Con, the Dog and Pony Show audio production with Brian Brushwood. First season is all about Operation Mincemeat. When the Allied forces, specifically the 20 Committee in Britain, conned Hitler, specifically devising a con job to aid the Allied invasion of Italy. It's very bingeable. It's only four episodes. Each episode's about 30 minutes long. So you can knock it out, certainly in a weekend. And that prepares you perfectly for Monday. When we begin with the first season, uh, or first episode rather, of season two. And that is all about the 21 scandal, the game show scandals of the 1950s. I gotta say, guys, this is the same story that the movie Quiz Show was about. I did not base any of the research on Quiz Show or the book that Quiz Show was based on. This is from totally different perspectives. And I think we come to some particularly, particularly different points of view on how that happened and and really the framework by which those scandals are talked about because they're pretty crazy. So world's greatest con, uh, go ahead on over to the podcatcher of your choice and binge season one. And if uh, you would like the ad free experience for season two, head on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. Thank you guys very much. Amongst all the confusion, we have uh, only ourselves to process everything that is coming through, which is why we are joined by my uh, my friend and free- frequent contributor here on PX3, Kevin Ryan. How you doing, buddy? Good, man. Good. My toddler's in the background with some input as well, so <laughs> got to give her credit. First thing yeah, first. to be here, man. Did you buy the STEM player? No, man. You didn't I want buy to buy the stem player. Did you did you get it? Not did you yet. get yours? It's on the way. 
It's on the way. The STEM player is on the way. Oh uh, man. I, I don't know whether or not it'll be the only, I, I really, I really want to just see how it is. For those of you who are unaware, Kanye West is releasing a new album on a $200 device that he is selling himself. Uh, uh, exclusively. Exclusively. So not as of now, not on streaming platforms. If you are, and as Kevin and I are experienced, oh, yeah. seasoned Kanye watchers, uh, uh, never, never say never, you know, this thing can pop up on streaming platforms tomorrow. And, and that would, that wouldn't be a, a shock, but uh yeah, I'm 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 excited to hear Donda 2 at some point today when I get my my stem player. You gotta give me an update because I think that'll be the decisive thing. If you say you have to get this, then I'll get it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're gonna move on from Kanye because uh people people for whatever it, it is a visceral reaction whenever I whenever I talk about Kanye on the show. I want to talk about empathy. And specifically, what I want to talk about is empathy in a time of war, which is what we are in question mark right now. Like this is certainly the closest that I can remember to a feeling of the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was an, a process for which not only very much wound up relying on empathy to sustain the mission, uh, but also to expand the mission from Afghanistan to Iraq and then to keep us in both countries for a very long time. So let's start here, Kevin. Uh, wh- where were you when when uh, the, the, the run up to the war in Iraq was happening? Because you're a little younger than I am. Yes. Yeah, I was in uh, ninth grade and I had this drama teacher who was very much like you know, American idiot. And, um, you know, we gotta, we have to get rid of like the warmonger in the white house. And yep, uh, it was interesting because as a ninth grader, you're like, I, I mean, that's an authority figure. So I guess she's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and green day, uh, you know, and green day, gr- said, look, told green me day put hate. out a banger of an album. There is there <laughs> uh, being an anti-war uh, activist is a lot better when the music's really good. And and the music was, was, was very, very good, at least from, from, from the green day front. I mean, I guess it's, it's funny because I maintain that nobody would have not attacked Afghanistan after nine. Yeah. Ralph Nader would have attacked Afghanistan after, <laughs> after nine 11. Like there's just no way that America is attacked like that. And we have a military like we have, and somebody doesn't get it, right? A big time. Somebody's going to have to get it there. The Iraq question was something that, you know, obviously became one of the most consequential foreign policy decisions with the idea being, well, what were we not paying attention to in the Middle East that allowed this to fester under our nose to the point where security failures and intelligence failures allowed 9-11 to happen. And so it's like, if you trace that thread back, what we wind up finding for whatever, I mean, uh, the, the, the neocon kind of mm. idea was we need to have a more direct involvement in the Middle East so people understand what democracy and American money can mean for them because that is effectively the way that we interact with the world is either you get prestige for talking to us or you likely also get money for, 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 for dealing with us. And we're just kind of the world's rich uncle that, that throws, that throws cash around, but to sell that to American voters, 
I believe you need to activate empathy. You need, mm. you need to say, well, it's almost like a, a different version of finish your plate because they're starving kids in Africa. It's like, Hey, uh, uh, vote for this because somebody's there, you know, uh, eventually we're going to put uh, an Iraqi with a, with a purple thumb on the cover of time magazine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you studied like white and gray propaganda? Have you ever uh, no. looked into that? No, it's interesting. It's uh, the you essentially the use of like lies that are uh, productive yeah. or he- helpful, and yeah, it, it always involves like um, like tr- trying to inspire a sense of empathy in 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 people. Uh, man, what do you think of the the libertarian argument? Uh, I'm talking deep, deep libertarian yeah. about. Like how democracy is, uh, is awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you're talking, you're talking like, like full anarcho, like capital L libertarian. Uh, uh, we, we need to off the grid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you recommended the the Nozick book, uh, 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 to me, which I, which I'm still working my way through, but I, I read enough to get the, the larger, the, 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 the larger point. And I think, you know, the most fascinating, question he has is at what point and and his and he breaks it down at what point is the state necessary like and and he he you know breaks down every possible evil thing that could happen in just warring tribes and and you know uh, then tries to spell out and obviously he is making an an extreme kind of libertarian case for the fact that not as necessary as you might think and and the drawbacks of what you give up for the protections are, are, are more than you might imagine, uh, than, than these small comforts, uh, would, would, would warrant. So I tend to be a realist when it comes to my own personal philosophy. And I believe that, (laughs) you know, things happen for a reason, not in the cosmic sense that like, you know, there is a, 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 a unseen hand guiding us, but that society moves because that is how the herd demands to be moved. That is how our, our unconscious collective kind of like demands to go. So I believe that our unconscious collective feels soothed at the very least, if not directly benefited and, and is preferable to a democracy. So while philosophically, we can have these conversations about exactly how much, uh, uh, you know, less the state could be involved. And yes, we could be full off the grid people. Uh, you know, I think we live in a great country where, yeah, go, you, you can effectively live that life in America. There's a lot of land and you can effectively live off of it. Uh, uh, you can, you can kind of have your own existence in this country the idea that that would be the solution for everybody is where we get into the trouble. Because to me that beyond the philosophical, we have this belief on all sides of the political coin where we kind of think that our philosophies would be better if it was played in SimCity. 
and we can just program in. And now everybody does this and boy, see, everything's better. And it's like, but that's not the case. We are all free radicals. Uh, we got to uh, talk about the metaverse at some point. Let's go. I, yeah. I think it does relate to empathy. Okay. Go. Um, yeah. I think, uh, now we're going to get into the simulation, man. Yo, yeah. Yeah. Let's but, do it. Uh, uh, so, um, this is kind of a roundabout way to get to it, but I, uh, I've been extremely interested in transparency lately. This, and this okay. idea of what I would call like one-sided transparency. So it's, I, I'm hesitant to use the word elites, but yeah. I think like they're, um, corporations, the state, um, the, the, the people who are, have power yeah. are, uh, expect transparency from us and, um, they, you know, brag about the transparency that they're able to perform, but they're not actually transparent. Uh, and I find that to be problematic and this relates to, um, also give me, give me, give me an example. So, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the state can demand your tax returns, but we can't see exactly how much money is going where from the state. Like, would that be a governmental example? Yes. Yeah. Or, or surveillance. Um, okay. Or like, and there's, there are solutions to that. I just read a book called the transparent society. And, and his idea is that, um, we should basically have like covalence. So like cooperative surveillance where, where we're able to monitor, oh, cause we don't know how much of our information is, is being used, how much we're being tracked. Uh, and I'm not trying to get Ted Kaczynski on you here, no. but like, uh, it it is something that I think like w- w- also from a social perspective, from a cultural perspe- perspective, we're like we've allowed ourselves to like destroy our privacy, destroy like our distance from the world. I think like we could all um, I feel like sorry, my emails are going insane right now. But, <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> I feel like a lack of transparency. Yeah, oh, more, more people are demanding your time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this also relates to one one of the things to to bring it back to empathy. Like yeah. this relates to um, this problem I've been going through lately. Is just like the idea of the other, like yeah. the other person, but also like who you were in the past, and um, less so who you're going to be in the future. But like this idea that we have a responsibility to the other. And that's essentially like what makes us very human. We can, we can uh, figure out who we are through the other. Um, I'm, so, I'm so, still yeah, working okay, a lot of these yeah, ideas. No, let's, yeah. Let's, 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 let's drill down on that. So when, when you say we have a responsibility to the other being a core element of humanity, then that mm-hmm. very much, I think you could see play out in our modern world where we are looking we are looking at people uh, who are outside of our economic class, right. And mm-hmm. saying, okay, well, well, I am defined on some level by my privilege uh, or I'm, I'm defined some level by my, my uh, financial advantage. And so therefore I know that I am because I can see somebody that nobody in their family has ever gone to college or I can see somebody who uh, uh, I make more in a month than they would make in a year, either in America or outside of our borders where that is very, very common. Mm. Uh, And our relationship to that, I guess would be a, a a definition of our humanity. Uh, 
Now the question is past that, what is actionable beyond looking yeah. at that and saying, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 in the iconic words of, uh, uh, the, Oh man, the, do they know it's Christmas? Like, thank God it's them instead of you. Uh, of, <laughs> beyond that of, of just saying, I, I am blessed for my privileges. What are the actions beyond that? And I think that's what gets us into these situations where now and and a lot of the anti-interventionalist argument, I believe, and and to bring it to like kind of even Ukraine now is they point out, oh, this is now the flavor of the month that now we're going to care desperately about the history of Ukraine in the same way that we desperately cared about the history of Afghanistan. And we desperately like with Afghanistan, we cared about the fact that the Taliban was knocking down statues. And that was a big thing leading into the Afghanistan war. And and we very much knew all of the excesses of Uday and Kusay Hussein before we went into Iraq. And, and now we're going to know Every floral print that's ever been uh, historically adorned in, in 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 Ukraine, so we can desperately protect that because our definition to that other needs to be filled out if we're going to eventually and let's let's bring it to the darkest timeline enter into some sort of world war with 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 uh, you know Russia and China based on on this particular conflict. So, like, part of that too is uh, Zizek, the the uh, the Eastern European philosopher. He talks about how like activism is like included in the price more and more often, and it's it's his critique of like uh, basically like capitalist empathy or yeah. the performative empathy. Um, and his whole idea is like, yeah, you know, you, you can you go to Starbucks and the the coffee may not be as good as like your your corner spot and you're going to pay more for it. But included in the price is this like this activism toward fair trade or whatever, yeah. whatever yeah. Uh, they're pushing. Uh, and, and this is a, this gets to another part of um, an aspect of empathy that's interesting to me is like empathy as power. And like anytime you talk about power, especially like empathy with regard to war, I yeah. think you have to talk about, you have to get into like concepts like state of exception and th this idea that, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. go ahead and explain that for, for folks. So this is a, a fascinating idea by Carl Schmidt, who unfortunately became a Nazi. Uh, <laughs> so caveat, caveat on that, but yeah. we're putting it on the box. We're putting it on yeah. the box. <laughs> like, um, his ideas. Uh, so uh, they've been, uh, there's a guy, Giorgio Agamben, who I've just been really, really into lately. Uh, he's an Italian philosopher. He's still alive. And he, he examines Carl Schmitt's idea of the state of exception, which is that um, you can see the sovereign is the one who has all the power, who has the most yeah. absolute power. So the, you can determine who that person is by dint of, of like their ability to make exceptions. So they can exist, they exist outside of the law, but they exist in the, the most innermost part of the law because they decide who it applies to. Yeah. So Agamben um, made some very controversial statements about how the, um, the mandates in Italy 
were an example of the state of exception, the, the COVID mandates. The COVID mandates, yeah. So, the, you know, this guy who was like a hero on the academic left was sore. He was just saying the same thing that he's been saying for 40 years. Yeah. But now he was applying it to a situation that moved against the, the, the narrative of, of the um, academic left. And he's, it's been this really interesting thing where they're like starting to draw. They did the same thing with Michel Foucault when, when he became a neoliberal near the yeah. end of his life. Like it just happens. But um, it, it's weird to me that, his idea would be so spot on. It's, it's correct. I think we're, we are living through a state of exception. We're living in the aftermath of this. Um, you know, I think COVID was, is, was mo- motivated by empathy as well. Empathy for the frontline workers. Yes. You know, 100%. The, pe- the people who are, you know, most affected by the disease. Um, but there's, I, I think, I think to, to that point and, and not to, to, to do a, a digression on a digression, but certainly oh, what we've seen all is all, all sides of this argument of every argument when it comes to COVID leads with empathy. It yeah. is, it is either protect the health of our children, protect the health of our society. This is, I am, I am, my, my heart is breaking because you, the, uh, the, the other could be so dunderheaded and lethal with your stupidity that, that my heart is breaking because my empathy for all these people, the, the old folks who are dying and, and, and everything else. And the fact that these lockdowns are happening, I don't want them to happen. If only you would stop being so stupid, maybe they would end sooner. And the other side is saying, I, my, my empathy is for everybody whose business closed, who now is out of work. And, and my empathy is for the people that are getting robbed on the streets because the jobs are still not there in the way that they, they used to be. My empathy is for children who now, I mean, you know, we are three years on you're seeing, I, I know for, for parents, like if your kids started a pattern of behavior at the beginning of the pandemic. We're now in year three of it. And year three is, mm. uh, I think that you're, you're talking a statistically huge part of, of any kid's childhood to, you know, mm. f- at any stage, you know, be they, be they very, very, I mean, you have a, a toddler. So it, hopefully this will kind of have breezed by, by the time uh, uh, she starts remembering things, but for people, kids that are in school, this is going to be a jarring, uh, a, a jarring thing. And so that's where the empathy is led by that. And, you know, when, when I did my thing on the Canadian truckers, what I wanted to do is before we go into all of the critiques, and I think that there are tremendous uh, valid critiques of what they've done, uh, uh, negative critiques of what they've done, but at least show people what they view themselves as and what they view themselves as are warriors for empathy, that, that they are doing the thing that will help free Canada. Like, and, and that is, they, they are doing it for the people. And, and it's, it's so fascinating to watch how that is, how that is always played out. That is almost without fail. The messages that travel the longest are the ones that lead with empathy to the people that want to hear it. So this is, this is uh, an interesting part of it to me is like, and this is the same dynamic as the one I was talking about with transparency. Like, are we looking at different definitions of empathy here? Like, uh, and is one of them false? Is one of them like performative yeah. empathy? Is there like a, a sort of like um, duplicitous version? Is there an insidious version? Um, 
where it's it's not even actually empathy. It's just Trojan horse. I don't think so. Or at least I think that that's overblown. To me, yeah. I, I, I believe that that is the easiest way you can short circuit the argument. So it's mm. like if somebody comes out and they're crying, uh, uh, you know, let's say a, a celebrity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they do something awful. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's on television and he shot his director of photography and he does an interview and he starts crying on television. If you are sympathetic to Alec Baldwin, you're like, wow, that's the worst moment in somebody's life. I can't believe that that happened. Uh, That's terrible. Uh, uh, Nobody who was guilty of anything like that would ever go on television and talk about it. That is the dumbest thing you could do. Look at him crying. I feel for him. If you are for various different reasons, either you don't like his politics or you really hate Beetlejuice, like, you know, <laughs> hate Alec Baldwin. <laughs> then you watch that and you say, those are crocodile tears. He is a liar. He is a manipulator. And this is, ex- he knows exactly what he is doing. And I think that if, if we are to imagine that whether or not you believe that Alec Baldwin is criminally liable for killing that woman, uh, that is, not the kind of behavior that somebody I think who's very rich and could just armor up and lawyer up and go about his life. He wants to be loved on some level, even in the most cynical version. So it's like, there's gotta be some messy truth that's there, which makes the idea of, Oh, cynical liar, uh, uh, to me, easy and cheap. And, and, you know, I, 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 I would tend to think that that is just a, a, a way to short circuit an argument more than it is a, a actual uh, thing that happens uh, at least as much as people kind of make it out to be, at least in political arguments. Have you seen the video? Uh, there was the videos of Alec Baldwin's wife, like uh, doing, cause you know, she's with she the went accent. To sp- oh God. Yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, 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 that whole situation. I mean, like, I'm just glad I, you know, my, my, my father once told me that uh, for every ass a seat uh, uh, when it came to romantic relationships and what, regardless of where you fall on Alec Baldwin's political opinions, there's no doubt he is an extra, extra, extra human being. And he certainly found an extra, extra, extra wife. Yeah, I um, I joined a subreddit that just like, I mean, they were prolifically hate on her. <laughs> this and is Hilaria, Hilaria Baldwin, which it, just the name, the name. And then Amazing. the way she said it, like Hilaria, Hilaria. <laughs> she's like just a white girl from New England. <laughs> yeah. Like the Boston accent comes out randomly. Uh, yeah. Th- that was a great metaphor, by the way. Thank like, you. Thank you. Sir. Uh, Thank you. Beetle- when you said Beetlejuice, I was like, man, this is getting real. Yeah, well, I mean, also because who would hate Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice is the best. It is just like such a great, such a great movie. I mean, down to the fact that I think aside from like in person, Beetlejuice does not show up in Beetlejuice until like halfway through the movie. In oh, fact, it's it, may, it might be later. Man, uh, that's uh, my, Michael Keaton, right? Oh, God. Yeah. No, the so, legend, the absolute he- legend. He was doing, he did a, a TV version of Much Ado About Nothing. Uh-huh. I think it was my, or Taming of the Shrew at the same time. And he was just playing, he was the sheriff, the drunk sheriff. Yeah. And he was just Beetlejuice the whole time. Oh, like, dude. I know. It's like, uh, 
I, and I was, I was taking a, a course, a Shakespeare course. And my professor was just so pissed the whole time. Oh, really? Like, this is not Beetlejuice. Uh, he's degrading Shakespeare. Oh, like, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> you, you let Keaton do what he wants. You make You like, let Keaton take any choice that he wants. That man's a national treasure. Protect him uh, at all costs. Batman, Batman gets a pass. Batman gets a pass. Uh, Yeah. Uh, 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 He is a real one too. I remember there was right when I was out of college, I was, I really made a dedicated effort to get into baseball. And so I'm a, I'm I'm a Pittsburgh pirates fan. So it, it, it was one of the final lessons where I realized as a human that I'm not into sports for suffering. Like I I will, I will reward excellence. And when my teams are very good and luckily my teams have been pretty good, I I will be happy to watch that, but I'm not here to rub my face across granite and, you know, then say that that builds character. That is, that is stupid to me. And so my, my pirates fandom lasted, uh, uh, you know, only a few seasons, at least dedicated trying to follow every game kind of pirates fandom. But in that time, Keaton, who's from Pittsburgh came out and threw out the first pitch and then during his press scrum ripped the ownership and was just like, they are so stupid. They are cheap. They're, they're ruining the fact that we have one of the best ballparks and one of the best cities and blah, blah, blah. So Keaton's a real one. Uh, nice. I will always, I will always root for Michael Keaton. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Take that Shakespeare. Exactly. Suck it. Uh, the drama teacher uh, or Shakespeare <laughs> professor, whatever, whatever it was. Uh, so what do you think? Are we going to war or not? Yes or no? So, oh man, all this context, I, boo, let's get into some takes. <laughs> yeah. I, I was actually, I don't know, man. I really don't know. I was going to turn to you to ask that question <laughs> as usual. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like, would that, w- so the scale that we're looking at is yeah. like the, the worst case is another world war, right? Yes. Is that How realistic is that? That's, that's the, yeah, the, the absolute worst case. And I always look at, you know, in, in campaigns or scandals or anything like that, I never look at, you, you can't ever go from like zero to a hundred, right? Like yeah. no scandal for any president, no matter how salacious will ever within a week go from like zero to res- resignation or impeachment or anything like that, like yeah. that, that doesn't happen. Uh, what you do is you kind of get to levels. If you think about it, like, okay, so this scandal brought you to the threshold of the first level, which now makes it possible that everything bad that could happen on level two can happen. Like now you are unlocking these possibilities. And so when I look at this, what I look at is like, Oh God. All right. So now we're at level one. We're at the point where like the world is conferring and presidents are flying to meet other heads of state. Like that is, that is level one. Now what happens at level two is a sustained conflict in Ukraine. uh, You know, the, the, the Russian Federation becoming more and more emboldened. Uh, there being a slow escalation to the point where eventually it's very hard to wind down. Uh, and then from that point, that would be the end of level two. Level three is something really bad happens when we're built up like that. And mm. now 
money starts running short, which means people start needing to call in favors. And that's where you get, you know, China becomes involved. And now all of a sudden we are we are in a, you know, we're we're, we're in a real pickle. <laughs> yeah, but I would I would I would like to call it instead of that's World the official a real yeah, pickle, the, the, the real pickle. Uh, <laughs> Man, there's a there's a, another writer I've been into. He just passed away like a few years ago. Paul Virilio is uh-huh. a f- French postmodernist, and he he writes. He was also an architect. He said he was alive during World War II in France um, when the Germans were setting up the uh, the barricade along the the west coast of of France. Yeah, and he um and he actually as a boy he would sketch the uh. The, the locations oh, okay. and then give it to the French. Oh, wow. Yeah. So interesting guy, fascinating guy. One of his ideas is like, um, that, you know, the pace of history is determined by the advancements in technology. Yeah. Like history is determined by particularly like war. Yeah. Like the, the technologies of war determine how quickly we're allowed to go. Great, great essay. Uh, speed in politics it's very difficult to follow but yeah i mean w- once you realize like oh okay i'm supposed to be reading this quickly and not thinking about it too much because that's the world we live in now yeah um but yeah th- this like this intersection of um uh, war and th- like the pace of things uh, particularly like it becomes like difficult to like parse out what you're supposed to be uh, empathetic about. We have to make these split second decisions and like empathy involves a certain amount of, I know there's an emotional, an immediate emotional response. Yeah. But like, it also is something that has to unfold. It it has like these realizations that come to it, these epiphanies, like these moments of connection. I think, The other thing to go back to your point about transparency in our current situation is that I think that there is a widespread uh, lack of transparency in like, why do we care in the way that we care right now? Like we didn't freak out like this about Crimea. Now, Maybe that's the point. The point is, well, we didn't freak out about Crimea and now he's going back for more parts of of Ukraine. So now we need to stand up. But we didn't get a speech from Joe Biden saying, hey, uh, Obama screwed up by not freaking out more about Crimea. We need to be more on the forefront here because this can never happen again. What happened in Crimea was an absolute travesty, which would have at least given us some level of, of, of transparency to understanding like, okay, well that's why we're so dialed up about this right now. It just, I think part of that, like I've tried to not look at this in a cynical capacity. I, Mm -hmm. I, I think that it is reductive and unhelpful to look at this as a wag the dog ploy or something like that. And, and look, reasonable minds can disagree about interventionalism and how much, of a role NATO should play and whether or not NATO is overexpanded, like that, that we were always asking for a fight with Russia. The more we started admitting member countries that were former Soviet republics, but what we have a lack of right now is 
I think, I mean, even in, in, in the lack of transparency, a narrative beyond Vladimir Putin's a bad dude and we need to, we need to box him in. And that's why NATO is important. And why is NATO important? Because NATO has always been important. It's like, well, wasn't NATO kind of there for the Soviet (laughs) union? Like, aren't they, isn't the current Russian Federation a lot poorer than the Soviet union was like back when this was a thing. And it's like, well, no, it's still very important. It's like, okay, I guess that's the thing is I, 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 I feel like there is a disconnect to the populace of why I think even yeah. less than the Iraq war, to be honest with you, I think with, 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 with the Iraq war, it was, Oh, nine 11 sucked. Wouldn't it be terrible if they had bigger weapons and we believe Iraq <laughs> has bigger weapons. Now that didn't end up being true. So there we go. Narrative versus transparency. But at least that was like, God, every jeez, uh, nine eleven happened like twenty minutes ago. That sucked. Oh my God, you th- this could happen with a with a with a with a, a, a dirty bomb. I, I, that, that's that's insane. We need to take care of that. I, I don't feel like we even have that level of of understanding of of this conflict. So th- this is kind of where where I've been struggling with the transparent with this this piece I'm working on with transparency because I think transparency in politics ruins politics. I think there's like a, a level of like uh, politics is dirty, man. And yes. there's a lot of there, there's so much that happens that needs to happen that it's just unsavory, and that's like we really don't. We need to kind of leave it to the lawyers. Like, 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 like throw it into the sharks and what they come out with is like, is it's probably the best option. I mean, the the best that they were able to do within this like political apparatus. Uh, So that's one thing I'm not. Well, I think the the weirdest thing about politics is that if you look at the most quote unquote, kind of like transparent politicians, that have succeeded, they were often very, very likable, very, very corrupt people. Yes. Like that yeah. are like, uh, uh, you know, they, they constantly get their hand caught in the cookie jar and just yeah. running basic graft and money laundering through their, their powers of privilege, but they take care of the right constituents. So they, they have the political instincts to say, Hey, if I get elected, I need these parishes I need these communities. I need these civil rights leaders. I'm definitely not referring to Huey Long. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, uh, and, and anytime that I get caught, as long as when I get busted for something, everybody who I know needs to get paid knows that they got paid under my watch. That's fine because they will always soft pedal it. And I can always look into the camera and go, Oh, ain't I a stinker vote for me. Uh, but likability yeah, yeah. yeah. Likeability is a huge part of that mm-hmm. where I, I think we have not seen a politician do anything like that is, is just saying, look, I don't like you. You don't like me. I'm not nice. I don't give good speeches. I don't like talking to you. I don't like shaking hands. I don't like kissing babies. To be totally honest, I'm not really a big fan of this town or city or state. Uh, uh, but your taxes are low. 
your your life is happy. We have the best schools in in the country. So leave me alone and vote for me or don't. To be honest, if I was never here again, it would be the happiest day of my life. Eat it like we don't see that because there we, is a necessary we got close to that <laughs> in with 2020 who? with with uh, number 45, President 45. Well, but he no, but he's likable. Like we haven't, uh, we haven't okay. seen, yeah. we haven't seen anybody who's just straight out anti-hero <laughs> or just like straight out, like bureaucrat. Like I just, I don't uh, like, I don't like talking. I'm boring as hell, uh, yeah. uh, but I know how this system works and, and it'll, it'll work better. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, I don't want to wear your t-shirt. I don't want to march in your parade. I, I, I'm just, I'm not here for all that. I'm here for one thing. And that is to be a bureaucrat. And that's what we're electing after all, right? Chief bureaucrat. Uh, (laughs) uh, So how about you do that instead of electing the, 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 quarterback who does a hula dance during skit night at high school, which is what (laughs) most politicians are. So, so the amazing, amazing hula. Uh, So (laughs) uh, to me, like, I think the best idea that uh, for me, for me that, that summarizes what we're talking about and this like intersection between uh, empathy and war is a state of exception, as I mentioned. And uh, an important part of that, that, Agamben brings in is this idea of the homo sacred, this, the sacred, the sacred man. Yeah. And it's this, this concept that's based in Roman law where that said someone who broke a certain type of law would be essentially banished from the community. Yep. They, they would, any person was allowed to kill them without any sort of consequences, but that person could uh, not be sacrificed to the gods. And, he uses that to as a description of like the ban. He yeah. talks about the ban and he, he brings in werewolves too, which is fascinating. <laughs> like, because of, there is a weird overlap between the, the sacred man and the werewolf. Yeah. And, and it's this idea that like the ban is actually um, entails like freedom. So, like, by being ostracized, you're actually freed. Um, oh, I forget. Interesting. I forget, but yeah, you can, you can, you can also impose that on like, um, Twitter, Twitter, political dialogue, like w- what happens there? Um, you want to know what I, this is a thing and we'll, we'll, we'll get out on this. I, I'm out on the idea that Twitter is representative of anything other than, oh, a, yeah. a, a, other than a listserv of people that went to college and, Big time. and, uh, 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 agree. Uh, yeah. And paint huffing teens like that are, <laughs> are there for lulls like that's that's pretty much it like like there are there are fringe elements but the things that are driven there are basically a message board that has gotten far out of hand uh, uh, out about of hand. about college graduates like oh yeah that is that is pretty much it all right uh, uh kevin ryan uh, uh the best as always uh where can people find you uh, on Twitter, uh, there we go. at, uh, the underscore Kevin underscore Ryan and, uh, Kevin Ryan dot us. I don't really update that very much, but that's got some of my stuff on it. As always, man. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. And that about wraps it up for us today. Politics, politics, politics was written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for dog and pony show audio in Austin, Texas. Show was edited by Brett Stewart. 
if you would like to thank Kevin Ryan for coming on the show or ask him for a book list of all the things that he talked about, head on over to letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is px3tweets. You can see us on Twitch, px3live.com, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Our podcast can be shared at px3podcast.com and you can get all the merch that uh, comes from this show at politicsmerch.com. Hey, you want to hit me off with a one-time donation? It is paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20 and cash app is px3cash. You want to send anything to me personally in the mail? Well, write it out to Justin Young, P.O. Box, 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content exclusively at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Idris Arslandian, DJ Katie Mack, Neemeister, Dr. G, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Beat Spicery, 70s TV salesman, Spy D, really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DB4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Berkeley, Steven, Diana's Silent Slumbers, Katie Stetch, Adam L., Double K Ranch, Yo Pinball Shop, John, the Opposable Thumbs for Dogs Foundation, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Matt, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Richard, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, J Pink, and Andrew. Hey, you want to join their ranks? Only one way to do it. Take politics seriously. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's my birthday week next week. So uh, it'll be a fun time. I'll have some good people on. We'll do good shows. And if we don't, then you can call me a ding dong on the internet. At Justin R. Young. But until then, this is your old pal, J.R.Y. saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this is the only show that dares discuss the Kanye stem player, which I did get in the mail after we spoke with Kevin Ryan. And oh, you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.